0: and welcome back to historically haunted i'm your host ariel and today's episode we will be talking about the alamo before i start i just wanted to say that my heart goes out to anyone who was affected by the wildfires in hawaii my heart broke as i saw the images and footage coming out of maui and i really hope that any listeners that were affected you're okay and i just wanted everyone to know that everybody on that island is in my thoughts And it's just such a heartbreaking thing. Wildfires are so scary. I would not wish that kind of fear on anybody. I have some housekeeping to get through before I begin the episode. Um, I wanted to thank anyone who purchased anything from my shop. Thank you so much for helping support the show. I really appreciate it. Um, I had a little bit of an issue with my new merchandise shop. It was my first time doing this, so I knew there would be some hiccups along the way. Um, what happened was I ordered some of my own merch once I launched the store and the quality of the merchandise that I got was really bad. It was on some shirts and I was so disappointed and I didn't want anyone to have that kind of bad experience. So I went and pulled all of my hoodies and shirts from the website. And if you are worried about the quality of shirts or a hoodie that you got, please send it back for a full refund. Don't worry about me. I would rather you were satisfied with your purchase. And if you want your money back, please make sure to send it back and get a full refund. I do still have my Spreadshop open. I am still selling mugs and stickers on that website. So if you still wanted to buy one of those to support the show, go on down to my link at the bottom of the show notes. And I do have a link to my Spreadshop. Now, if you were looking forward to getting a shirt from me, never fear because I am working behind the scenes to get new shirts. I've decided to go local. I found a local print shop next to me and I will be using them for the future. I will keep you all posted as we go. And just to warn you, I will have to put money down on these shirts and I do not have a lot to spare at the moment. So there will be a limited amount of different sizes for one type of t-shirt just to see how this goes to start. Hopefully I'll be able to branch out and start moving on to hoodies and other things. That would be the ideal goal but please keep in mind that this is just me and everything has got to be slow to get started but i'm hoping for um you know a better experience for my shop in the future so stay tuned and i will keep you all posted and as always i wanted to thank my patreons for all of your amazing support you guys are the ones who keep this show going and you have made all of this possible so thank you so much I have some fun things planned for exclusive Patreon content in the near future and I cannot wait to share them with you guys. I recently did a fun spooky episode on strangeness of Oregon and its connection to the show Gravity Falls and my next episode will be about a few haunted locations in North Carolina. So if you are interested in becoming a Patreon, I have a link to that page down below and of course Halloween is right around the corner and this year I'm doing 3 different locations. I'm I'm currently working on all of them right now, so I cannot wait to share them with you for the Halloween season. If you are one of my Patreon members or if you have signed up for my newsletter, then you already know the three special locations that I have chosen for this Halloween. This month, I launched my new monthly newsletter for Historically Haunted listeners. And in my September edition, I not only gave a sneak peek to what's coming up next, but I also had a little fun. I made a trivia game and a downloadable bingo card for fall activities to do this year. So if you would like to receive my monthly newsletters, please head on over to my website to sign up. Another great way to keep up with announcements for the show is to follow me on social media. I have an Instagram, Facebook, and a threads page. Links to everything is down below, including my website and spread shop. Oh yeah, and I do have a disclaimer before I start the show. I have learned that many parents have been letting their kids listen to Historically Haunted, and while I'm so glad that many are enjoying the history, I do want to remind everyone that I do cover some disturbing and scary topics. Uh, I don't want to discourage anyone from listening to the show, but I want to make it clear that I'm not going to sugarcoat the history or the haunting and paranormal claims of each location. All of my episodes were never made with kids in mind because I never intended this podcast to be for kids. So please keep that in mind while listening to my show. I will make disclaimers when I can, but overall, this is still going to be a scary podcast even without disclaimers. If you're worried about my show being too scary, you can always pre-listen to my show, see if it's something you think your kids can handle, and then let them listen to episodes based on what you've listened to already. That would be my best recommendation for my show. And thank you to everyone who does listen. Okay, that's all I've got for today's announcements. Let's get this show started. Today is a listener suggestion episode made by an Instagram account with the username Backroads Less Traveled. I know a lot about U.S. history, but the Alamo is something that I surprisingly knew little about. I remember briefly talking about it in school, but all I really knew is that it was some kind of major battle and, uh, spoiler alert, everybody dies. So this episode became a big history lesson for me and I enjoyed expanding my brain and learning all about it. So huge thank you to Backroads Less Traveled for this suggestion. The Alamo is one of the most famous battles in American history. While this battle is iconic, few people understand the historical context of this fight. Some consider the battle a heroic and patriotic last stand for a noble cause, while others consider the Alamo an aggressive revolutionary act toward Mexico. Ever since the battle took place, many legends have surrounded it. And modern day historians are still trying to separate fact from fiction. This chapter in history brings up a lot of questions. Who was in the right? What went wrong? And is there any truth to some of the claims? Today, I am going to try to the best of my ability to look at the real history of the Alamo, brought to us by historians and reliable sources that I will have linked down below. At its core, this battle was just one piece of the Texas War for Independence from Mexico. Still to this day, people confuse the Alamo as a battle that was fought during the Mexican-American War. But the truth is that the American government was not involved at all. To understand what happened here, we need to set the stage. So let's go back in time to the early 1500s to truly understand what was going on before we remembered... The Alamo According to most history books, the land that we now call Texas began as a Spanish colony. But we can't forget that there were thousands of indigenous peoples who lived there first. The first Spanish settlement in Mexico was founded by Hernando Cortez on the Yucatan Peninsula in 1519. Over time, the territory spread to include modern-day Mexico, Central America, and some areas of South America. Spain also claimed land in territories located in the U.S. that we now call California, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and Florida. By the 1700s, many well-established missions were set up throughout the Spanish territories. These missions were built for the sole purpose of converting natives to Catholicism and conditioning them to fall in line with Spanish cultural norms. Once the mission reached its goal of forcing indigenous peoples to act like them, they could then turn the mission into an official parish with a list of members for a congregation. The structures that we now call the Alamo began as a Spanish mission established by Franciscan missionaries who named it Mission San Antonio de Valero. The original mission began in 1718 on a different location. The original spot was near the San Antonio River. The location was not suitable, so it was moved to a new place only one year later. Even though this new location was better, the mission was forced to relocate yet again due to a devastating hurricane that destroyed the entire community in 1724. Construction on the present day structure began in 1744, and its new complex was to have a convent, chapel, small section of dwellings, storehouses, and workshops. The roof of the chapel was never completed due to dwindling funds. The buildings were surrounded by four thick adobe walls in the shape of a rectangle. The walls were 2.75 feet thick and ranged from 9 to 12 feet tall. For my Out of the United States listeners, the wall was 0.84 meters thick and ranged from 2.7 to 3.7 meters high. The mission thrived for a time due to its agriculture and the availability of water. They grew fields of corn, beans, cotton, grapes, watermelon, figs, and chili peppers. They also raised herds of sheep, cattle, burros, horses, and oxen. Miles of irrigation lines were dug to water the vast amounts of crops and livestock. You can actually still see some remnants of these irrigation lines today. Many missions used forceful tactics to get the indigenous peoples to follow the Catholic faith. This tactic sadly worked and the indigenous peoples were forced to learn the Spanish language had to denounce their own religion and way of life for a new god, and they were also taught different skills, like weaving, masonry, farming, and metalwork. Over the next 100 years, they gradually adapted into the Spanish culture, but it was not that simple. People who decided to live on the mission grounds did so for different reasons. Some did believe in the church and accepted this new way of life, but others chose to pretend that they did so that they were allowed to live inside the walls of the compound for protection. Many local indigenous tribes were not giving up so easily, and they formed raiding parties to try to reclaim their land. Over time, the mission grew into a community of American Indian, Spanish, and Mexican Catholics. Raids from Apache Indians continued to be dangerous, so the mission had to be fortified for its protection. They added a turret, three cannons, and a large front gate. By the end of the 18th century, constant fighting and disease were taking its toll on the mission, so it was decommissioned in 1793, becoming a self-governing village named San Antonio de Valero. In 1803, Spain decided to reinforce the garrison in San Antonio. They sent a company of 100 men with instructions to set up a fort at the old mission. They turned the old convent into barracks and, and in 1805 opened the region's first hospital. Here is where we have our first historical discrepancy, and there's going to be many more of those to come. Some sources claim that the company of men was named the Alamo Company, and this is why they decided to name the Fort El Alamo. Other sources claim that the men called the Fort El Alamo because it's a Spanish word for cottonwood trees that grew on the banks near their hometown in Mexico. Whatever the reason was for the name change, El Alamo was turned into a fort and the soldiers inside would have no idea that by the 1930s it would become home to one of the most famous and mythical battles in U.S. history. The Mexican Revolution from Spain began in 1810. Due to widespread discontent, the people living in Mexico felt that the Spanish were responsible for many injustices, economic inequality, and political oppression. There was a call for political reform and greater democratic representation. Since my focus is on the Alamo today, I do not have time to go into much detail about the revolution. So if you would like to learn more, please check out all the sources I have linked down below. It's a really important history lesson to learn. I just don't have time to cover So, while the Mexican Revolution was beginning, Spain was also dealing with another problem. White American settlers were starting to slowly enter their territories, and they began having issues with the Spanish right away. I can imagine a lot of 1800s versions of let-me-speak-to-your-manager kind of moments here, but arguments started to break out between the new settlers and the Spanish citizens. Mexico won its independence from Spain in 1821. After Spain left, the new Mexican government feared losing Texas because they were now vastly outnumbered in the Northern Territories. They also worried that the United States would just sweep in and take Texas. They needed to find a way to quickly increase their own population. So in the 1820s, they decided to offer land grants to immigrants. These grants also promised no taxes and let people bring enslaved workers if they had Already owned them previously in America. The Mexican government had decided to abolish slavery, but they decided to let U.S. citizens keep their enslaved workers only in the territory of Texas. In return, the new settlers had to promise to improve the land, become official Mexican citizens and follow the teachings of the Catholic Church. This was an enticing offer to many United States citizens who were down on their luck. The promise of free land and a fresh start was hard to turn down. This caused the population to explode. By the 1830s, there was more growth in Texas than when Spain owned the land. This, as you could imagine, backfired quickly. Many U.S. citizens simply just took over the land, and they never agreed to the terms of becoming Mexican citizens, making them illegal illegal. illegal immigrants. Some refused to follow the Catholic religion, and many just showed up and started squatting on the land. Since a few American settlers were already in the thorn of the side of the Spanish and locals, I'm surprised that they thought that this was a good idea. I think the lack of communication and bad intel near the border is what led to this decision, because not shockingly, this plan quickly deteriorated and became a huge problem for the Mexican government. As tensions between the Mexican government and Anglo-American settlers began to increase, Greece, Mexico decided it needed to move quickly to gain control. In the spring of 1830, they stopped all immigration, started charging taxes, and added restrictions on slavery. They also increased their military presence. In return, this made new settlers angry because this was not the terms that they agreed to when they showed up. Many rich landowners who favored slavery began rallying around local politicians to call for Texas to become an independent nation. For that to happen, they needed to start a revolution. Small militia groups began arming themselves, leading to small skirmishes against the Mexican army. The first real battle of the Texas Revolution was the Battle of Gonzales on October 2, 1835. The Mexican army had been ordered to go to surrounding towns and reclaim weapons and heavy artillery that had been loaned out for protection against native tribes. When the army entered the city of Gonzales to reclaim a cannon, they were met by 18 men on the other side of the river who refused to give it back. The Mex- The Mexican army had a force of 100 members of their mounted infantry. However, the river was swollen, so they had to look for another way across. While the army went down the river to look for another way across, word came that the men wanted to talk. When the army came back, they were met with a group of 180 men on the other side of the river. There was also a flag flying that said, come and take it. The Mexican military knew that they were outnumbered and decided to leave. The group of Texans found a way across the river and chased them down, running into them at night in dense fog. Both armies agreed to wait until daybreak, and on the morning of October 2nd, 1835, they met on the battlefield. The Mexican military was forced to retreat and return to San Antonio without the cannon. That cannon is known today as the Come and Take It Cannon. The Texan forces decided to give chase, and when they arrived at San Antonio by mid-October, small skirmishes began on the outskirts of town. On October 28, 1835, the Texan army set up a siege in San Antonio. Once again, the Mexican army was defeated with over 50 casualties. The Texan army knew that there would be a counterattack, so they began preparing. preparing the town and the Alamo. The Texans repaired fortifications, brought in more cannons, and stockpiled supplies. Just before the Battle of the Alamo, they had 18 cannons and 150 men waiting to defend it. Before I start discussing the battle, we need to take a pause to discuss some important figures who gave their lives defending the Alamo. The first name that might sound familiar is Jim Bowie. James Bowie was born on April 10, 1796 in Logan County, Kentucky, but he was raised in Louisiana. When he grew up, he found work as a land inspector. Bowie gained fame after participating in the Sandbar Fight. The sandbar fight was intended to be a formal one-on-one duel between two feuding families, but it turned into an all-out brawl. In the fighting, Bowie was shot and stabbed by a sword. With the blade still sticking out of his chest, he somehow rose to his feet and killed the sheriff of Rapids Parish with his large hunting knife. He was then stabbed and shot again. Bowie survived his injuries to the shock of local doctors, and many legends were created about him fighting other people throughout the South with his large hunting knife. Knife. The Bowie Knife is still a popular hunting knife to this day. Bowie was also known for being a slave smuggler and getting caught in the land forgery scheme. This is actually what brought him to Texas. It was fresh land for him to try to scheme in. I can't think of any Western hero more famous than Davy Crockett. Born in 1786, he was known for his sharpshooting skills and adventurous spirit, which led him to become a legendary figure in the early 19th century. During his life, Crockett served as a bear hunter, soldier, and politician, representing the state of Tennessee in the U.S. Congress. Crockett's larger-than-life personality and tales of his adventures made him an enduring symbol in the American frontier. While his involvement in the Texas Revolution was his downfall, the myths of his heroic last stand at the Alamo sealed his fame in American history. Another figure that comes up a lot is William B. Travis. Travis was an important figure to the Texas Revolution. He was born in the beginning of August in 1809 in South Carolina. adult years, he became a lawyer and military leader. Travis came to Texas after leaving his wife and child after he accused her of infidelity, and he tried to start a new life in Mexico. He began to work on a political career, helping form a new party that was in favor of slavery and called for texas to become its own republic travis is best known for his command at the alamo now there is more to this story and and better explanation as to what all these men were doing in texas and why they wanted to become an independent country so please go check out the history sources i have down below and learn the ins and outs plus the politics of it all all right it's time to discuss the battle of the alamo In February of 1836, General Antonio López de Santa Anna led a large Mexican force with plans to take over San Antonio and end the Texas Revolution. His troops arrived at the outskirts of San Antonio on February 23, 1836. And began preparing for a siege. Due to historical inaccuracies, it's hard to know the official number of soldiers that followed Santa Ana at this time. Historians estimate that his army had between 1,800 and 6,000 soldiers, so anywhere in between those two numbers. I know that sounds rough, but Do keep in mind that this whole battle is being told by fragmented stories, so a lot of it might not make as much sense on the outside, and there's a lot of historical inaccuracies. Many people also seem to think that this battle only lasted one day, but it was actually a siege that lasted 13 days, ending in the Battle of the Alamo. The Alamo's defenders only had around 150 men and they were commanded by James Bowie and William Travis. Davy Crockett also took up leadership roles and started preparing the men for battle. James Bowie requested a parley, and he, along with Chief Engineer of the Garrison Green B. Jameson, went out to discuss the terms. The terms that Santa Ana gave were for them to surrender and he would decide their fate. William B. Travis was the youngest officer at the Alamo at only 26 years old. He ordered a cannon to be fired in response to Santa Ana's terms. In retaliation, Santa Ana ordered a red flag to be flown from the nearby San Fernando Church. A red flag flying means no quarter. No quarter is a military term used to let everyone know that there will be no prisoners taken. The Alamo was about to become a massacre. The next morning on the 24th of February, the Mexican army began surrounding the Texan army, trapping them inside the Alamo's walls. Fully grasping that they would all be killed, Travis wrote a passionate letter pleading for aid. It was addressed to the people of Texas and all Americans in the world. In it, he pledged victory or death. This letter was dispatched via mail carrier to the town of Gonzales. One historical account claims that a few hours later, around 30 more men showed up and answered the call for help, putting the new estimated total of the Alamo defenders at about 200. Some accounts say that these men actually came in the middle of the siege during the cover of darkness. At some point before the firing really got started, James Bowie became gravely ill and was bedridden for the remainder of the siege. This put the young William B. Travis in full command of the Alamo. Meanwhile, Santa Ana became Began placing cannons strategically across the river and started firing them at the Alamo, chipping away at its thick adobe walls. On February 25th, the first real engagement began. Santa Ana sent an infantry to take over a section of outbuildings on the southwest side of the compound. This force was met with cannon fire and a melee of bullets from the Texans, inflicting a good deal of casualties and causing them to retreat. The Texans then burned the buildings to keep the Mexican army from using them cover. Even with fierce fighting and leadership from Davy Crockett, this was still a Mexican victory. Their numbers were so high, they were able to advance upon the garrison anyway. Later that night, yet another letter with pleas for help snuck past Santa Ana's men. They were being sent to the delegates meeting to declare Texas's independence in Washington, Texas. But all of these letters fell upon deaf ears because the Texas Republic leadership was in disarray and they did not know how to handle this issue. On February 28th, Santa Ana continued to lay siege on the Alamo, placing cannons in more locations. As the days passed, they continued to chip away at the thick walls. During the the Alamo was under constant cannon bombardment. Inside, the sleepless Texans would repel advances and dodge cannon fire. By night, the men would refill the holes in the walls and try to bolster their garrison. By the 29th of February, the Mexican army had fully encircled the Alamo. Santa Ana was expecting Texan reinforcements to come to the aid of the Alamo, but they never did. While the siege was going on, the Texas Declaration of Independence was adopted on March 2, 1836 in Washington, Texas. Texas, about 100 miles from the Alamo. Travis sent out his last plea for help on March 3rd, while Santa Ana gained around 1,100 more troops. Some historians have theorized that Santa Ana was waiting for the Texan reinforcements to arrive. Remember, his plan was to crush the rebellion at this location, so some think that he let the mail carriers go through on purpose to try to lure more of the Texan army to this location so that he could finish them off. By March 5th, Santa Anna got tired of waiting, and he called in all of his officers and told them that the next morning they would move in on the Alamo. The last day of the siege began during the early morning hours while it was still dark on March 6th. Santa Ana placed his men in strategic columns around the Alamo. He had 125 men attack the South Wall. More than 400 charged in from the East and nearly 800 struck the North Wall and Northwest Corner. The plan was for this to be a surprise attack while most of the Texans were sleeping. However, a young and anxious Mexican soldier began to shout, which caused a chain reaction of battle cries and even some bugle calls. This woke up the Texans as the Mexicans were advancing. The Texans scrambled to take up and began firing cannons and rifles to protect themselves. Because of the large size of the Alamo, the Texans didn't have enough fighters to effectively defend the walls. The Mexican soldiers could press themselves against the walls for cover, all while firing straight up at the Texans. This caused the Texans to stand up and fire down upon the army. When they stood up, the Mexican sharpshooters began picking them off one by one. Some men managed to get out of the Alamo and tried to flee on foot, but they were chased down and killed by Mexican cavalry. Back inside the Alamo, the Mexicans were able to breach the wall using ladders within 30 minutes, leaving the people at the top of the wall to endure vicious hand-to-hand combat. The Texans who survived the initial attack at the wall fell back to their second line of defense, the long barracks on the east side of the grounds. Unfortunately, in their panic, no one disabled their cannons. The Mexican army soon turned these cannons on them, inflicting major damage. Then the Mexican army went in room by room, killing everyone inside. The battle was over in roughly 90 minutes. the only survivors were mostly women and children. There are reports of some enslaved people being allowed to live as well. The estimated survivors were around 14. I've seen some say 20 to 25. It just, there is just a a guessing number here, but anywhere between 14 and 25 is what I could find. All 200 Texan army men who fought perished. There are some reports of a small number of men who survived by faking that they were prisoners already inside the Alamo, but this report is unverified. An estimated 145 of Santa Ana's men were killed, and somewhere between 240 and 442 were wounded. Emboldened by his win at the Alamo, Santa Ana set his sights for the rest of the Texan army. He moved his men east in the meantime the commander of the texas army sam houston had been building his numbers after william b travis sent his victory or death letter local newspapers began circulating the story and showcased the letter on the front page the news of the massacre at the alamo was headline news and it helped rally forces from all corners of texas including some southern states on april 21st 1836 the texan and mexican armies fought again at San Jacinto in a surprise attack. Houston's army numbered 935 soldiers, while Santa Ana had 1,250 troops. The Texas army reached the river first and could hide from the Mexican army in the tree line. Santa Ana was left out in the open, and the Texans, using the rally cry of Remember the Alamo, took out the Mexican army. The battle was over in a mere 18 minutes. 630 Mexican soldiers died, and 600 were taken prisoner. Only six Texans were killed in this battle. Santa Ana fled on horseback and was chased down and captured the next day. He was found hiding, dressed as a common foot soldier. After everything he did, the Texans agreed to let him live as long as he left with his remaining men and agreed on the condition that Texas was now an independent country. I'm shocked that they let him live, to be honest. Santa Ana lived to his mid-80s and died a disgraced an impoverished man. As for the newfound Texas Republic, Texas had many problems to deal with. The war had drained their economy, they still were under constant threat from Mexico, and Apache raiding parties were still attacking them day and night. They needed help from an outside force, and the United States was the perfect candidate. However, many living in the states were not too keen on letting Texas enter the Union. If Texas was allowed to enter the Union as a slave state, it would upend the delicate balance between the free and slave states. In 1837, United States President Andrew Jackson officially recognized Texas as an independent nation. Texas continued to struggle even though they now could trade with the United States. Many Southerners in the U.S. still wanted Texas as a state, and in December 1845, Texas was officially admitted to the Union. The current president was James Polk, and he had to deal with where the border between Texas and Mexico would be. The dispute over the border partly led to the Mexican-American War. President Polk also was a strong believer in manifest destiny, and he wanted to add California and today's Southwest to the land held by the United States. First, he offered to purchase the land from Mexico, but was rejected. So being Americans, Polk decided to take it by force. And uh, that was a joke in case anyone gets offended that I said that. um, That's a joke from a YouTube video, Oversimplified. I'm sure you guys have heard of it since you guys are all in the history community. But if you have never checked out Oversimplified, I would highly recommend it um, he makes amazing uh videos explaining different wars throughout history and he has the funniest jokes in those videos it's hilarious so the being Americans part is the joke it actually comes from the pig Wars episode which you should really check out it's really funny and it actually explains manifest destiny very well he's over on YouTube go check him out okay sorry that was my ADHD brain just taking a little detour there let's get back to my episode the mexican-american war lasted from 1846 to 1890 48 ending in a US victory. In the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, the US gained 524,000 square miles, stretching to the Pacific Ocean. Okay, now that we kind of wrapped up what happened to Texas, we're going to go back to the Alamo. After the battle, the Alamo had various uses. The Republic of Texas turned the Republic of Texas turned the Alamo over to the Roman Catholic Church. After the Mexican-American War, the United States leased the Alamo from the Roman Catholic Church to be used for military storage. It also became a location for merchants to sell goods to travelers heading out west. During the Civil War, the Confederacy used it for their army storage. When the war ended with the Union victory, the Union Army occupied the Alamo for 10 years during the Reconstruction period. The U.S. Army left when Fort Sam Houston was built nearby. In 1883, the state of Texas purchased the Alamo's church building from the Catholic Church. Around this time, two women pushed for the preservation of the grounds. Adina de Valdez and Clara Driscoll founded the Daughters of the Republic of Texas and they aimed to turn the Alamo into a memorial and museum. In 1905, the Texas governor turned the land over to the Daughters of the Republic of Texas and in 1920, they repaired the chapel and finally put a roof on it. They worked to restore woodwork, replaced windows, preserved the long barracks and and created a gardens in the courtyard areas behind the church. Today, the only remaining original buildings of the Alamo are the Church and the Long Barracks. Over the years, the Alamo has gone through many changes. They have updated historical information, showcased artifacts found on the grounds, placed information plaques explaining the battle and aftermath around the area, and created a museum with a gift shop. In 2011, the Alamo was given to the Texas General Land Office, which is now in charge of the preservation. To this day, archaeologists are still finding artifacts. Before we get to the hauntings, let's take a second to talk about some of the legends, myths, and misconceptions conceptions that have been surrounding the Alamo. What we have to understand is after the battle newspapers had a field day writing supposed eyewitness accounts that were not corroborated. Many stories were sensationalized and coupled with word of mouth that work like the telephone game and the glaring fact that almost no one survived to dispute these claims and tall tales they were told as fact. It's pretty easy to claim something is true when there's no one alive to challenge you. So here is a quick list of some of the unproven and perhaps fabricated claims starting with the winter of 1836 was the coldest in texas history this story seems to be added for dramatic effect and the tale goes that the mexican army was hit with a fierce blizzard killing many of their horses and men however according to journal entries from both mexican and texas armies the weather was mild and typical for that time of year Some of the men even referred to it as short-sleeved weather. This story seemed to have originated in the late 18 or early 1900s. Why, no one's really sure. The next legend is that the Battle of the Alamo bought Sam Houston time to build his army. This claim is also unfounded. Many think that the Alamo battle had no effect on Houston getting his army together. Because remember, it was not until after the battle at the Alamo that many men came running to help Sam Houston fight off Mexico. Texans in the late 1800s embraced the Alamo story, creating books and spreading the story far and wide. By the 1900s, the legend only grew with comic books, movies, and TV shows depicting harrowing acts of Last Stands. Speaking of Last Stands, this is the most mythical part of the Alamo story, what the men did and how they died inside the Alamo. There is a famous myth about William B. Travis drawing a line in the sand with his sword. It was depicted in the 1955 Disney special Davy Crockett at the Alamo. Travis supposedly takes out his sword and draws a line in the sand telling men that if you cross this line, you fight with us. Only this actually never happened. Historians can actually trace this myth back to the late 1800s. Another legend that comes from the Alamo is that Davy Crockett supposedly went down swinging. Some stories claim that he fought off a large section of the army all by himself before finally being taken down. Others claim that he was last seen standing on a pile of dead Mexican soldiers waving his rifle above his head, taking them down with the butt end of it before he was shot. In the Alamo movie, from MGM Studios made in 1960 with John Wayne playing Davy Crockett. It shows Davy Crockett fighting back before grabbing a torch and blowing up the ammunitions building to keep the gunpowder away from the Mexican army. While all of this sounds like Hollywood, that's because it probably was. According to journal entries by multiple Mexican soldiers, Davy Crockett was actually captured fleeing the Alamo and was later executed. Another myth is that Jim Bowie shot at and took down a few soldiers from his sickbed before being killed. But, according to his nurse, who did survive the Alamo attack, Jim was so sick that he could not even sit up to drink water on his own. Also, according to Mexican soldiers' journal entries, Jim was found hiding under his blanket before being killed. It can be hard to separate fact from fiction, but as we learn more, historians are finally piecing together the real story. While the Alamo is famous for its battle, it has gained another reputation over the years, being the most haunted place in San Antonio. Many buildings surrounding the the old fort are also reportedly haunted, but I'm going to stick to just the Alamo and the museum today. I will be covering some other haunted spots on my Patreon page later this month, so let's start talking about the ghosts that are said to roam the grounds of the Alamo. Ghost stories about the Alamo started just days after the initial battle. After the battle, Santa Ana ordered his field officer, Andrade, to get a group of cavalrymen together and go back to destroy it. The men were sent out with orders to burn it to the ground and take down the walls, but they came back only a few hours later frightened and pale-faced. Andrade became concerned at their strange behavior and asked what had happened. The men claimed that, When they came upon the fort, they were halted by six pale looking spirits, each waving a flaming sword. These apparitions were blocking the entrance to the grounds and this scared the men who returned quickly and left the Alamo untouched. Andrade became enraged that they did not follow orders. He also was angry that they were blaming their meager attempt on something as ridiculous as ghosts. So he rallied a group of fresh men and they went back to the Alamo to finish the job. When Andrade arrived, he witnessed to his astonishment what he would later call dark spirits rising from the ashes of the buildings that had crumbled in battle he and his men watched in stunned silence as these spirits rose from the ground and their hands turned to fire this terrified andre and his men who fled the grounds and the men never returned to the alamo again A similar sighting happened again in 1871 when orders came for soldiers in San Antonio to demolish a portion of the Alamo to make way for new construction. According to legend, residents who lived near the fort witnessed the strange sight of a large ghostly army rise from the ground and then march in formation ending at the Alamo this army then stood over historic buildings as if still guarding them this terrified demolition crews who then went running from the site after stories of this ghostly army spread the plans were scrapped by the u.s army There are many other versions of this tale. Some accounts claim that the ghosts seen by the first group of of the Mexican cavalry were the ghosts of monks from the old Catholic church, and they had flaming swords. With this version of the story, the monks seemed to be protecting the church and the now blood-soaked land that no mercy was shown. Another version is that a specter rose from the roof of one of the Alamo buildings, and his ghost had a ball of fire in his hands that blinded the Mexican army, making them Turn tail and run. Whatever version of the story, it seems like the ghosts of the Alamo want what is left of the fort to remain, especially since they gave their lives defending it. These initial sightings were just the beginning of the ghost stories to come from the Alamo. According to several news articles from San Antonio Express News in February 1894 and August 1897, people at the Alamo were experiencing all kinds of hauntings. I had a hard time finding this on the Alamo website, but according to these newspaper articles in the late 1800s the Alamo was used as a police headquarters and a jail. That did not last long, because while in use, the prisoners began to claim that they were witnessing a lot of strange paranormal activity. This was only corroborated when police officers also began sharing their own encounters. The most famous story is of the ghostly sentry. A man dressed in mid-1800s style clothing would often be seen pacing and then running back and forth along the roof of the building with a long rifle in hand. he always walked in the same pattern from east to west. When officials would climb up to the roof to confront him, he would vanish. Inside the jail, prisoners would hear strange moaning sounds, calls for help, and disembodied footsteps. These sounds were also heard in the courtyard, which grew so intense that officers and night watchmen would refuse to patrol the grounds after dark. This caused such a problem that the San Antonio City Hall decided it was cruel and unusual punishment to make prisoners sleep in place that was so haunted and they felt it was unfair to the guards and officers who were scared to work there so they quickly picked a new site for the jail the ghost stories persist to this day and after many eyewitness accounts people have come to some theories about that phantom sentry when he is seen he is not just pacing but he is seen running almost panic-like looking down at the ground outside of the walls of the old fort Some people think that he is stuck, replaying his last moments, maybe looking for an escape route before meeting his demise. Some think that he is guarding the Alamo's lost treasure. This is yet another myth of the Alamo. The story goes that Jim Bowie and other wealthy Texans who got stuck in the Alamo hid thousands of dollars, which would now be millions of dollars, worth of silver and other priceless goods inside the wall or buried somewhere on the property. Some stories claim that Bowie had found a treasure while hunting for a legendary silver mine just before the battle began. This is a theory as to why Bowie was in the area when all of this went down. Many think that he was out looking for this legendary silver mine, and some think he got lucky, took it back to the Alamo, and then when the battle began, he hid it somewhere on the property. But there's no proof to this tale. However, some think that this ghost is still protecting its hiding spot. Maybe this soldier promised Bowie that he would look after it after Bowie fell gravely ill. Whether this is true or not, we will never know. Unless, of course, they do find it, because treasure hunters have been looking for it ever since. And very recently, they've been using ground penetrating radar trying to see if there is any proof to this legend. Uh, Treasure hunters have also been trying to prove that Oak Island is a thing too. So yeah, that hasn't been proven yet. As soon as that gets proven, I will listen, but until then, I'm not sure about Oak Island either. Since so many people have visited and worked at the Alamo, it's not surprising that many have had paranormal encounters. The most common sighting is shadow figures. Many have seen shadows darting past them in broad daylight, while inside buildings, people claim that you can see the shadows of large groups of men running past the windows off toward the front gates, as if they are charging into battle. The sound of running footsteps down corridors and past people walking on the paths in the garden and in the front have also been reported. This is a really scary claim, but some people who have passed by what's left of the adobe walls have claimed to see apparitions of men coming out of the walls with grotesque looks on their faces. Another common claim is the sound of a major battle outside or all around you. Even some of the Alamo Rangers patrolling at night have claimed to experience the sudden sound of screaming men, gunfire, bugle calls, drums, and orders being given in both English and Spanish, along with an echoing boom of a cannon that all stops as quickly as it started. Today, the lawn covers sections of an old cemetery and many federal marshals have refused to patrol the grounds at night due to strange sounds, shadow figures, and some have even reported the feeling of being watched and having someone follow them around the old cemetery area, which I find really creepy. Average visitors who have had no intention of having any paranormal experiences have come up to park rangers claiming that they heard whispers in the church area, voices from the walls, and felt cold breezes pass right by them. Strange bouncing orbs have been seen to the naked eye during the day, along with phantom torchlights. In the garden area, people have had run-ins with the ghost of a cowboy. When seen, he's dripping wet as if he had just ridden through a bad storm. Some people believe that he was one of the mail carriers who took a letter asking for help. Some think that he feels survivor's guilt and returns to look after the Alamo. An apparition of a woman has been seen multiple times near the old well. She appears at night and normally is only seen from her torso up, as if she's having a hard time manifesting. No one knows who this spirit is and she doesn't seem to interact with anyone and she vanishes as quickly as she appeared. One of the more common sightings are soldiers marching in the center of the Alamo and seeing soldiers as if they're going about their days when they lived in the 1800s. Some visitors have stopped by the gift shop to thank the people working there for having actors on the grounds to add to the atmosphere, only to be told that they didn't have any history reenactors at the fort that day, and when rangers would go to investigate, no one matching the descriptions of an 1830s Texan or Mexican soldier is to be found. In a room that is now used for storage and staff meetings, there are reports of a tall Indian who is said to creep up behind staff members. Once they feel his presence and turn around, he will suddenly vanish or walk back through a solid wall. The spot in the wall used to be a doorway leading to a tunnel that was attached to the the Hotel across the street. There is a famous ghost sighting of a man dressed in 1830s attire. One hot day in late spring, a ranger was walking by the library when he spotted a man dressed in a long overcoat, tall boots, and wearing a plantation hat. The ranger knew that there were no Living History Day performers scheduled for that day, so the ranger decided to follow him. When the strange man got close to the chapel, he faded into thin air right in front of the park ranger's eyes. No one knows who he is, but he appears to always be retracing his steps across the courtyard to the chapel day and night. Many think that these were some of the last steps he took before he was killed. The gift shop is said to be haunted by the ghost of a little boy. People working at the gift shop and average day guests have reported several strange occurrences with him. Most who see him say that he appears to be between 10 and 12 years old with blonde hair but the strangest part he is only visible from the waist up he likes to play pranks on people knocking things off of shelves and peeking at people around corners people have also heard him giggle behind them only to turn and see no one there he will also peer down at guests from the second story window Many think that this little boy lost his parents in the battle, and he passed away shortly after due to some illness, and his spirit now returns to the Alamo searching for his parents. One ghost sighting that might surprise you is the ghost of John Wayne. The Duke was so obsessed with the story of the Alamo that he spent 1.5 million of his own dollars to recreate an exact replica of the Alamo. He did this for the MGM Studios movie, The Alamo, which came out in 1960. The movie took 14 years to make and cost the studio a whopping 21 million dollars. In the 60s, that was a ton of money. John Wayne spent 1.5 million dollars of his own money because he wanted the Alamo set to look as realistic as possible. He also spent years touring the real Alamo, looking up building plans in the archives and learning all he could about the story. Even with all that knowledge, Hollywood still did its thing, and much of what was portrayed in the movie was inaccurate. I've seen this movie, and I will say the least they could have done is to have the battle start in the early morning hours while still dark, like it actually was, and it should have been a sneak attack, but, you know... Maybe it had something to do with the cameras and the dramatic effect they were going for. One thing you can tell, though, is John Wayne and the studio went with the very mythical version of events instead of the historical ones. And apparently the general audience and the critics knew it, too, because this was a huge box office flop and John Wayne almost went bankrupt. John Wayne might have come back after his death to see what went wrong. Not a week after his death in 1979, people reportedly saw his ghost walking around the Alamo as if he was inspecting it. Then, in the most interesting of interactions, people began seeing him talking to the ghosts of the dead Texans. And this I find fascinating. Can ghosts talk to each other from different time periods? I would like to think, yes, they can, but the idea of it is still so interesting nonetheless. People still see him at the Alamo today, and according to one story, a psychic was brought in by the Alamo staff a few years back, and the psychic confirmed that he shows up about once a month to still find out what he did wrong with his movie. If only he could have gotten the true answers while alive, maybe his movie would have been successful. There are still plenty of ghosts to talk about, and this one is a little disturbing. There have been reports of a tall man and a child standing on the rooftop of the Alamo. These two spirits are seen just after sunrise And as the sun comes up, the man wraps his arms around the boy and then jumps off the roof. This horrifying image has been seen by multiple people. Some think that this is some kind of dark residual energy from when the battle was coming to an end. Did a panicked father decide that jumping to their death was better than what was coming? We will never know, but it's sad nonetheless. Another famous ghost at the Alamo is Davy Crockett. He has been seen in various places around the fort dressed in his favorite buckskin attire, complete with coonskin cap, and his flint stock rifle slung over his shoulder. The main location to see Davy's ghost is standing guard near the chapel. Guests often mistake him for a historical reenactor until he vanishes before their eyes. He has been seen by thousands of people. Even multiple people on group tours have cited his ghost wandering the grounds. Residual energy is everywhere at this location. One of the most famous stories comes from the Long Barracks. One night, a ranger entered the long barracks after hearing a strange noise. He poked his head into a room and was stunned by what he saw. A man in buckskin clothing was hunched on the floor. His body was riddled with bullet holes. Suddenly, a group of Mexican soldiers ran in, lunged, and stabbed the man with their bayonets. He heard the man scream as he was dying, and then the apparition vanished, leaving a terrified ranger in their wake. While many think that this was the replaying of Davy Crockett's fictional demise, most seem to think that this could have been another Texan who had run to the second line of defense only to get blasted by bullets and then cannon fire. While Crockett might have made the buckskin look famous, he was not the only man to wear this outfit in the 1830s. In the early morning hours just before the battle's anniversary, people report hearing the thundering sound of hooves as if an invisible horse is galloping away from the mission. Many believe that this is residual energy of the last plea for help that Travis sent out right before the final battle. There have also been reports of Mexican soldiers storming what used to be the walls of the Alamo. They silently race across the ground before vanishing where the walls used to be. A tall Mexican officer has also been seen wandering the grounds. He is always seen the same way, slowly walking with his hands behind his back his face full of anger and sadly shaking his head. Many believe this to be the ghost of General Manuel Fernandez, who was against the massacre at the Alamo and tried to get Santa Anta to change his mind. This, of course, fell on deaf ears, but it appears as though he still feels guilty for the attack in the afterlife. Another strange occurrence is people often feel sudden bouts of sorrow. I imagine it would be hard not to feel that way when touring a location with that much heartache, but some people say they become overwhelmed and they have to leave the property. After these encounters, people claim that the feelings come out of nowhere and they have no explanation for them. I could not find out if the Alamo does seasonal ghost tours or not, but many ghost touring companies have the Alamo on their walking tour map but I can't find out if they will let you inside to do any investigating. If anyone knows whether you can or not, please let me know. The Alamo will always be a place of myths and legends, but it's important to know the true history of the battle. After all, the ghosts seem to want everyone never to forget the real story of the battle at the Alamo. Thank you all so much for listening to today's episode. I hope that you guys learned a lot about the Battle of the Alamo. I know that I sure did. And I really enjoyed being able to share the true history with all of you. Before I go, I just want to thank you all so much for your ongoing support of the show. I am truly lucky and blessed to be able to do this podcast and I'm learning every day. And I hope that my editing and my reading has gotten a lot better over the years. I'm going to continue to grow this podcast and I work so hard at it. I put my all into every episode that I make. And that's why it takes me so long, but I still love doing this. So, we have a couple more episodes coming up because Halloween is here. So, like I said in the beginning of the show, there's going to be three episodes this Halloween. If you're a Patreon member or a, um, a newsletter subscriber, then you already know which ones they are. I'll be announcing it on my Instagram very soon for everybody else. So, you guys will all know what to expect. I'm working really hard on those at the moment. I'm also going back to school, like I mentioned last episode. So, I I'm wearing a lot of hats at the moment. I'm a content creator, a podcaster, (laughs) uh, an Instagram person that I'm trying to work things out, and I'm also going to school. So it's a lot for me, especially on the Instagram front. I'm not good at it, and I'm trying really hard to build my social media presence a little bit more. Um, I'm a shy person by nature. I know that putting my voice out there and making videos makes it maybe seem like I'm not shy, but I really am shy, and I don't I've lived my life thinking that nobody cares what I have to say, but I'm learning that, okay, people actually do like seeing a little bit of what I do. So if you guys like the video that I recently posted of my behind the scenes, let me know in the comments down below on Facebook, Instagram, and uh, maybe I'll start making more of that kind of content. Uh, My blog post is still coming up. I have not had any time to work on that, but um, I'm trying to find the things to talk about on there as well. So I need a little bit of brainstorming time, but I think the first official blog post is going to come out in the next few weeks and i think it's going to be my tips on adhd and stuff like that so anyway thank you guys so much for supporting the show as always links to everything is down below in the show notes sources i've got um, some cool historical videos if you want to learn more about the alamo and things like that also my social media handles and my website and my spread shop Uh, pages are all down below in the show notes so make sure you're following me on all of those and I cannot wait to see you guys back here really soon on Historically Haunted because the next episode will be the official start of Halloween. All right, everyone, I hope you guys have a fantastic day and I'll see you guys back here really soon. Bye everybody!